Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 29th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, what's your favorite candy? Favorite candy? Yeah. There's a lot of good if you, candies. If you, if you had to go get some candy right now, what, what, what kind of candy would you go get? Um... <laughs> Let's see. If I if I was getting a candy bar, it's probably a Snickers or a Three Musketeers. If I'm getting okay. like bite candy, I think M and M's and Skittles are both very good. I'm pretty high on chocolate, so I'd probably go with regular M and M's. But Skittles are also very good. Okay, these are all pleb tier answers so far. I'm not what, impressed. What candy would you get then? Peanut butter M and M's. That's no. clearly the right answer. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You get little bite sized morsels of chocolate peanut butter. Or you could just stuff a whole bag in your mouth at the same time, <laughs> and either answer is fine. No. <laughs> Regular M&Ms wow. are just better. That's crazy talk. Regular M&Ms are only good in cookies. They're, they're basically chocolate chips at that point. You no. might as well say, like, I like eating chocolate chips as my favorite candy. <laughs> M&Ms actually, I think, suck in cookies because they're like, they got the hard shells and like, you can just put chocolate chips in and it's just better. No. No, because that way you get the extra little crunch when you bite you into them. You don't want the extra little crunch. It's a cookie. Yeah, you do because you, you got to make a nice soft cookie. It can't be too crunchy. If you, I guess if you're making like dry, crappy, crunchy cookies, then you throw crappy m M&M, or your crappy M&Ms in there and then you get crunch on crunch. But yeah. But do you know what the secret to making a good uh, cookie is, by the way? I've learned this. I've what learned is, this recently. And it's stepped up my cookie game tremendously. Uh, replace like anywhere from a quarter to half of the amount of regular sugar with brown sugar and makes for a much more delicious, softer, uh, better textured cookie. Makes sense. Pretty sure the Mm -hmm. recipe that I stole from my old roommate has both regular sugar and brown sugar in it. Well, I have to see what kind of (laughs) ratios they are then at that point. Mm -hmm. All right. So what are we talking about today? Uh, Your... Icelander list that you won worlds with. We're finally getting around to that one. And you're going to tell everybody how to play this deck because I'm looking at the win rates right now on Talishar since it's been posted and it's sitting at 46% win rate. And the deck's not that bad. I don't know <laughs> if you've known this, but it's a pretty good deck and it's won some tournaments so far. And I think the world, the people just need a deck tech and they need your help, Michael. So please, please help people get better at playing Icelander. All right. Uh, happy to happy to help. So, yes, let's get started. Sounds great to me. Where do you want to start? Should I read the deck list like we do for a deck list reviews? I'll, I'll read it. You'll read. I'll it. read okay. it. It, it. It's your masterpiece, so the least I can do is read it for you. Okay. Okay. So for reds, Michael has three Aether Ice Fane, three Enlightened Strike, three Finals Fighting Spirit, three Scar for a Scar, three Sink Below, and three Wounded Bull. At yellow, he has two yellow Aether Ice Vein. At blues, he now has three Aether Hail, three Aether Ice Vein, three Amulet of Ice, three Blizzard, three Brain Freeze, three Brothers in Arms, three Channel Lake Frigid, three Cold Snap, three Emeritus Scalding, three or sorry, two Energy Potion, three Frost X, three Frosting, one Heart of Fine Doll, two Hypothermia, three Ice Bolt. Three Ice Eternal, three Insidious Chill, and three Polar Blast. And then the equipment's at the bottom here. It's one Waiting Moon, one Alluvian Constellus, one Coronet Peak, one Crown of Providence, one Findle Spring Tunic, one Iron High Gauntlet, one Iron Rock Gauntlet, one Metacarpus Node, one Nalrune Hood, 
and one Storm Strider. Does that sound all right to you? Sounds right to me. I was following along on my other monitor. It all checks out. Cool, cool. I'm glad I can read. <laughs> okay, so what, what's the first matchup you want to talk about? So I guess just before we jump into matchups, I'm going to talk briefly about the deck. So in general, the goal is that you are playing these efficient attacks, and if your opponent doesn't block out block them out, then you're going to deal a bunch of damage and ideally disrupt their turn with something from Arsenal. But regardless of whether you do disrupt their turn or not from Arsenal, you're always threatening to disrupt their turn. So it can be very punishing for them to not block out the attack to keep a powerful five-card hand if you end up just having like a channel like Frigid or something pretty disruptive in Arsenal. So that's kind of like the threat of the deck. And then another thing is the attacks are all super efficient. So like even if they are blocking, if they block a Wounded Bull with two cards, they're still, they're still leaking like two damage. They just block a final Spider Spirit with two cards. They're leaking one damage, you're gaining a life. So you can make pretty efficient trades where if other decks are blocking with two cards and playing two cards back, most of the time you are going to be ahead in that those trades because your attacks are so efficient. And a lot of the more aggressive decks, they their four card hands are going to outperform what you do with your, like, like they're going to get more value per card. If they get a play of four or five card hand uninterrupted, than you would get per card when you're playing these big attacks. But your goal is to disrupt their four or five card hands enough that like, if they're just taking the damage to present these big hands back, then they're going to lose because their four or five card hands aren't doing what they would are hoping they'd do basically. Yeah. It's crazy how much just like, a frostbite, obviously, and then on the higher impact, it's going to be the Aether Ice Veins and Channel Lake Fridges that are just either forcefully stripping cards out of your opponent's hand or just costing them extra resources that they don't want to necessarily be paying for their actions. So on top of this efficient damage, Icelander is a deck that since her weapon requires her to play a non-attack action, and since a lot of her damage is just prevented with Arcane Barrier, she is... Well, she would become somewhat vulnerable to being fatigued since you can block out her attacks and block out a lot of her arcane damage. But then the way that she can kind of play around getting fatigued is a combination of Amulet of Ice, Insidious Chill, and Frost Hex, and Ice Eternal also, I guess. So the biggest thing is with Amulet of Ice and Insidious Chill, if you play an Aether Ice Vein on your turn, then you're going to strip a lot more of their hand than you normally would from a disruptive effect. And because of that, they will have maybe one card or often zero cards if you stack up enough of these on your turn. And then they're completely vulnerable to any damage you're going to deal on their turn. So that can be something like just casting an Emeritus Scolding into Waning Moon is seven damage that gets around uh, gets around them fatiguing you. But the biggest thing that she can do to play around fatigue is if you have multiple Frost Axes in play, then you can cast an Ice Eternal for X equals 4 or even X equals 5 with a Tunic Counter. Or even more if you have Energy Potions, which you don't have in a lot of the matchups, but X equals 5 is kind of a lot A lot of the time what you're going for is pitching 3 blues and using a Tunic Counter. And that's going to deal... It's going to give them 5 Frostbites and deal 5 damage. And then 5 more damage for each Frost Hex you have in play at the end of their turn. So that can pressure like... 15 damage if you just have two frost axes in play and then you can also pitch that last blue you used to fuse to winning win as well so you can get 18 damage out of not out of nowhere because there's a lot of setup but in a way that's very hard for them to interact with so 
she basically has those tools to kind of fight against fatigue. Yeah. And I guess touching on the fatigue thought process in general, it's incumbent on the Icelander pilot then to realize and always keep track of what your density of threats are left in your deck. So it's pretty common that you'll halfway through the game realize, okay, I've played two Enlightened Strikes. I played all of my final Finding Spirits are blocked with them. And I only have one Wounded Bull left in my deck. And I, I had a block with a red Aether Ice being on a critical turn. So I only have like six-ish threats left in my deck and my opponent's still at 30. Uh-oh, like the alarm bell should be starting going off in your head and you need to be start really thinking about hard pivoting towards the more disruptive elements of the combo instead of just relying on those efficient attacks. It's just something that is very important to always be thinking about over the course of the game. Yeah, and that's that's one easy way to lose games if you aren't thinking about it is you run out of attacks, your opponent's at 22 life, and you have no frost taxes in play. A lot of the hands you're going to draw at that point aren't going to be very threatening because you don't have any of your big attacks, which is basically the only way you can like threaten damage on your turn. About those in Aether Ice Veins. Yeah, it's hard to close games with blue frostings, that's for sure. Yeah. So if you end up in that spot, it's going to be tough if you didn't play out any frost taxes and you run out of attacks and they have a pretty high life total. Okay. So, I guess, ready to move into matchups now. Okay, where do you want to start? All right, let's start with Phi, because I think Phi is probably one of the best decks, has been one of the best decks for a while, and I expect it to always be, maybe not always, but for the foreseeable future, it'll be a significant threat to the metagame. Okay, and, from like a macro level, do you think you're favored in the match, or do you just think it's 50-50, or they're favored? I think it's really close and it kind of depends on a few things. It's if I, I honestly don't really know whether we're favored or not. I think the matchup's tough. And a lot of the reason it's tough is because Phi is pretty good at hiding how many resources he'll need during the turn. So you don't always know when your frostbites will be efficient to tax him. You don't always know when, they're going to be able to arcane barrier your waning moon activations without it costing them a lot. So because of that, it can be pretty t- tricky to time your disruption. There are a couple things that you have going for you in the matchup is first is that channel like frigid is huge against Phi, And a lot of the time he wants to play three to six cards or effects each turn. And that just means having a channel and play that turn means he needs three to six more resources to do that same turn, which is not really possible. <laughs> like mm-hmm. a lot of the time he can pay through extra resources for channel, but he won't have nearly as big of a turn as he would have if he didn't have a yeah, channel. Absolutely. So I think that's the biggest thing that you want to focus on against Vi is getting your channels out. And then the other thing is, I guess I'm going to jump and compare Phi to Briar a little bit. Briar, Briar's biggest turns are obvious when they're going to happen. She has a channel Mount Heroic going into her turn. It's obvious it's going to be a big turn, or at least has the threat of being a big turn. Whereas Phi, you don't really know when that's coming. Just He has a five-card hand. He randomly goes, belittle, reveal thing, cast an Art of War, and suddenly... suddenly yeah, you're off to the races. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> suddenly it's a huge turn, and you're just like, whoa. So it can be pretty difficult to make sure you have answers for that kind of stuff. And the good news is Phi doesn't play two and three-card hands very effectively 
very effectively. So just like disrupting him enough of the time, a lot of the time you can just like build an advantage over the game. And then his big turn is going to be a big turn if you don't have a channel like Frigid or Blizzard at the right time. And there's not really anything you can do about that. But hopefully throughout the rest of the game, you have built enough of an advantage that it makes up for basically how much damage you like during the big turns. Yeah. And it's just a race. It's just a, a straight up race with the five because they obviously are not very incentivized to block because they have a lot of two blocks in their deck. So they're not very often going to just spend all four of them blocking out wounded bulls for eight. And they don't really want to be pitching a lot of extra resources into arcane barriers. So it's interesting that a lot of the five players now don't even bother with Arcane Barrier 2. They just stick with the Arcane Barrier 1, Vindal's uh, Spring Tunic, Tracker Stripe Shuko, and I think Mask of the Pouncing Links is usually favored for them. And they just try to go as fast as possible to get you before you can really get into like any of those setups uh, that Icelander really wants to get to in order to prolong the game. Yeah. So talking about sideboarding for the matchup, since it's just a race, you're not really worried about you're not really worried about getting fatigued and most fives don't even have the uh, the AB3 to even threaten the fatigue. So against Phi, currently I am just cutting my combo pieces. I'm cutting Frost Texas, I'm cutting uh, Ice Eternal, and I'm cutting Energy Potion, of course. Since it's, yeah, since it's a race, you don't want cards that are or you want all your cards that are as efficient as possible. So I'm playing all of the reds in this matchup. Just Okay. They're what about there. Amulet of Ice? Why don't you talk to me a little bit about that card? Because that doesn't block either. Yeah, so Amulet of Ice is very good because you can use it to basically just trade for a full card. And Amulet of Ice is just like one of the best cards in Icelander outside of the fact that it doesn't block because Icelander can really struggle to use four-card hands. And having Amulet of Ice as just a thing with go again that you're very happy to get in play is perfect a perfect way to use those four card hands you play amulet device and then attack with the thing in arsenal your last card it also since phi gets phi's power scales multiplicatively with how many cards he has in his hand if you have an amulet device on a turn maybe you aether ice vein him and he just takes five and discards a card or pitches a blue for ab1 and pays the two having an amulet to just like strip one more card to make him play a smaller hand can be very powerful. On top of that, this is a matchup where brain freeze is very good. You can brain freeze them and then look at their hand and you kind of know what their hand's capable of and if you should amulet that hand or not. So I... Yeah, getting that information is critical. Yeah, for those reasons, I've been pretty happy with amulet device in the matchup. It can suck if you're going second and the Phi attacks all out, and you draw Amulet Device plus another no block or two Amulet Device or something. Even just drawing one sometimes results in you taking like a reasonable amount of extra damage. That like you, three to four. Yeah. Yeah. Like three extra damage than you would if it was just a random three block, like a Frost X mm-hmm. or an Ice Eternal instead. But I think yeah, the, the math checks out. The upside of it <laughs> is high enough that I think it is correct to leave it in. And. I could see that changing if the games are, if you're like losing games because that one or two or three damage, you leak extra going second. And for a while I was sideboarding this out going second, but I think the deck just kind of needs it to smooth things out. And then lastly, 
it's also very nice to be able to arsenal this card, play it from arsenal and give them a frostbite without committing any resources. So you don't have to winning win them if they're going to end their turn with like two resources floating because they had to pitch an extra card to pay for the end or something. Yeah. Or pay for the frostbite. So it has a lot of upside and I think it's one of the best cards in Icelander and right now I'm not cutting it in any matchups. Okay, that's interesting. So I think there is another matchup where I'd like to discuss it because I think it might be correct to cut it against Dromai, but we'll get to that when we get there. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, any final thoughts about um, Phi? I guess like I guess we didn't talk about the defense reactions at all. How important are cards like Sink Below and Brothers in Arms? So the biggest thing is stopping their four power attacks and just getting efficient value out of your cards. Brother in Arms is really important in a lot of spots because Icelander has this problem where she gets a two-night counter and she doesn't always have a great way to use it. You can arsenal your two-cost things like Channel Lake Frigid or uh, Ice Bolt, but Ice Bolt's not a card you're like looking to arsenal that often, and you only have three Channel Lake Frigids in your deck. So, And also sometimes when you play Channel Lake Frigid, you're not wanting to win even them the same turn anyway because they're going to waste resources because they can't use their hand efficiently or whatever because there's a Channel Lake Frigid in play. Yeah, Emeritus Scalding is the other 2-1 that matters a lot, but yeah. That's true, that's true. I... Generally, I'm only looking to Arsenal that when it's lethal, but it is relevant. And I guess that is another way you can spend your tunic counter if you don't really have a way to spend your tunic counter. So, but the biggest thing is that they stop the mounting anger breakpoint and also snatch, but it's kind of harder to line these up with snatch. But they stop mounting anger breakpoint, which is very nice since it's just one extra damage if the Phi gets the mounting anger off. So they're basically blocking five against mounting anger, which is great. Okay. Awesome. Um, lastly, for equipment, uh, Coronet Peak's great. As long as they don't have Tunic Counter, it's great to trade a card for a card. A lot of the time, a common line will be you play Scar for a Scar and then activate Coronet Peak and Arsenal card. And that happens a reasonable amount in the matchup. I think Tunic's the only chest that makes sense. You don't have, it doesn't have arcane damage, so you don't want to lose it. <laughs> for the gloves, this is the thing that I'll kind of talk about. That's really weird that there is Iron Rot and Iron Hide Gauntlet in the deck because usually you just play whichever one's better this iron rock gauntlet was kind of a last minute choice for worlds because of phi specifically and the reason for that is phi is a hero that frequently ends their turn with an action point left over and just arsenal's their last card you don't really know what that card is while phi is playing his turn maybe he goes like attack with a zero for three and then swing the searing ember blade with one floating pays one to get back a phoenix flame attacks a phoenix flame and they have one card left over in their hand and you can't a lot of times to use your hand efficiently you need to block earlier on because you don't really like if the turn just ends there and you have another card you wanted to block with then it's really unfortunate i guess so basically the reason i have the iron rock gauntlet is so that you can if they end their turn with a snatch because almost every fight deck is playing three snatches if they end their turn with a red snatch then you can block with an extra three block and the iron rock gauntlet and stop the snatch on hit and the reason that it's really weird is because if you don't have the iron rock gauntlet if you have iron hide gauntlet or something else you need a tunic counter to be able to block out the snatch in that same spot or you're gonna have to be putting two cards into blocking the snatch which is really bad and usually means you just won't have a turn if you do that whereas like if they snatch you block with a three block and iron rock gauntlet maybe your hands like two blues and a wounded bull which is a pretty common hand you would keep and not block anymore with because you're gonna play the wounded bull and arsenal the last blue then the snatch you can block with one of the blues and the iron rock gauntlet you can still play the wounded bull you just lose out on an arsenal which 
isn't that big of a deal if they are snatching there because then they're going going to have a four card hand because they didn't have an arsenal because that's why they played the snatch. So, okay, yeah, that's why Iron Rock Gauntlet's in the deck. I think that's the only matchup I'm playing it in right now. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's true. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what was your What was your question that I stopped to talk about equipment? Um, I was just going to point out that it's interesting that. Uh, you talk about brother in arms being able to utilize the tunic resource to block for four, but then it's an issue that I guess you don't want brothers in arms and gauntlet then both being the sinks for that tunic resource. Then you just are looking to just only use the brother in arms for it then. Yeah, it's, I think it's more not that iron hide gauntlet is bad in the matchup. I think iron hide gauntlet was perfectly serviceable. I think it's just that iron rock gauntlet is actively good because of that snatch situation. Okay. So I, if I don't have Iron Rock Gauntlet in the deck, I'm perfectly happy to play Iron Rock Gauntlet and it's fine. But that snatch situation does come up very regularly and the Iron Rock Gauntlet has helped a lot in my testing. I believe it. Okay. Okay, uh, moving on. I. <laughs> Are you still more to so say? I think I only listed eight cards to cut. The Frost Hexes, the Ice Eternals, and the uh, Energy Potions. Mm-hmm. So the last two cuts, I think, should be blues. I've kind of moved around on what they should be, I think. I'm kind of low on hypothermia in the matchup, but if all the fives know you're not on hypothermia, that kind of gives them some room to gain an edge. So mm-hmm. I think when a lot of times in the tournament, I've been cutting hypothermias into five or trimming down to just one so that like they kind of have to respect it, but you don't ever have to arsenal it and have it be sitting awkwardly in your arsenal waiting for them to play a blaze headlock <laughs> or use tide flippers or something. But that that's the last card I would cut currently is the two hypothermias. You could also cut the heart of final when you're going second because it doesn't block. And I think the upside is a lot lower than the amulet of ice's upside of just like, yeah, you're not going to get second cycle to get two life out of it. Yeah. But going first, I'd never cut a heart, but going second, I think it's very reasonable to cut it. And now I'm ready to move on. We did it. We got through five. (laughs) So what's the next hot deck you want to discuss in the meta right now? Is it Levia? Are we going to finally learn how to sideboard against Levia? No, but I'll talk about Levia if you want to. You kind of have... No, we'll save the best for last. If we have time, we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess next would be Oldheim. Oldheim's pretty common, and I think... That matchup is pretty tricky from the ice center side because yeah, I think it's I think it's very very skill dependent on who wins. As somebody who's lost old time a lot, so <laughs> from from the ice center side, I don't like Scar for Scar in the matchup because Stalagmite is very good against Scar for Scar. If you attack with Scar, they Stalagmite you. It feels so bad. I think if you know they're not going to be playing Stalagmite, if you know they're on Arcane Lantern or something, and you know or they're or they're going to be on Sledge. I'm usually pretty happy with Scar for Scar because it's an efficient red. But if they have Stalagmite, it's really bad. And then it can also be kind of tough against Ice React. But I think that's like... The, so the combination of Stalagmite plus Ice React makes it really awkward a lot of the time. If they don't have Stalagmite, I think it's still worth playing it over Ice React. But that said, in Swiss, I'm leaning towards cutting it if I don't know their deck. Yeah, I think we've seen that evolution where... First, old time was just all in on sledging in the matchup, and I think over time against Bull Lander, 
they realized that Stalagmite plus Winter's Whale is actually the way to go. Icelander, oddly, is a deck that really doesn't play well through these disruptive effects like a single Frostbite or Channel-like Frigid. So when you look at it from that perspective, like Wounded Bull is great when it's just two cards for eight damage, but having to pitch that extra card and turning it into three cards for eight damage makes the deck atrocious on rate. So that's why I think Winter's Well started to pick up a little bit more in popularity. Yeah, and that's part of the cost of like trying to make your deck as efficient as possible is you're making all these deck building decisions to maximize use of your resources. And then suddenly if your your opponent's like, you need one more resource while well, your deck isn't built in a way to really pay that cost because it's using all of its resources. <laughs> so yeah, so I, th- I think Winner's Well plus Stalagmite is probably the best configuration from the old time side if you know you're playing against an Icelander. For sure. Or against an Icelander with attack actions. Yeah, but that's going to be the vast majority of Icelanders now. I mean, who would play stupid old arcane damage when you could play Wounded Bull? <laughs> the other cards I'm cutting, I'm cutting Blizzards and Hypothermias. There was a time where I think it might be correct to leave Hypothermias in against Old Time, where they had Enlightened Strike, Zealous Belting, and Rousey Ancients. I don't think you can expect most Old Times to have all three of those cards. And even if they do, you won't know it in Swiss. <laughs> So in a top eight situation where you see their deck list and they have all three of those, it is probably reasonable to leave hypothermia in. Blizzard's just bad. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it doesn't block and it's too situational. And then for the last cards you cut, you you definitely want all your combo pieces in this matchup. And you want most of your cards. And then the last thing I would cut is either, or not Brother in Arms, Brain Freeze or Polar Blast. I'm still not sure what rate I want on each of those. Polar Blast is very good once you start getting multiple Frost Axes in play because it threatens a lot of damage when you have Frost Axes, and a lot of the time you are planning to Frost Axe old time. And then Brain Freeze kind of sucks, but it blocks for three, and you need a reasonable amount of three blocks against old time. So especially since a lot of your normal blue three blocks, like Ice Eternal and Frost Axe, that in a lot of matchups you don't mind blocking with them, you need them to combo old time. Okay. It's interesting that you're saying that the plan is to mostly combo or frost hex all the time though, because I think that's why I've struggled in this matchup a little bit is I wasn't necessarily expecting old time to slant as aggressive as he has been, I guess, over the past few months. And I was really punished for expecting this slower, slower, long grindy game where we'll both obviously get to second cycle. You know, it's not like we're going to be hitting each other for 14 damage a turn. And then all of a sudden old times hitting for 14 damage a turn. Um, So do you think that the combo is just something that wax and wanes depending on how old times built in the meadow, or is it just something you're always looking to do? No, plan A is still just play the tempo game and race them. A lot of the old times that I've played against as they've gotten more used to playing against Bolander. So basically post-nationals and like testing leading up to worlds, the old times were getting their reps in against the deck, learning if they blocked out these attack actions, then Icelander would have the problem that we were kind of talking about at the beginning of the video where suddenly she just draw four blues every hand because she used all of her attacks in second cycle and can't really do anything on her turn. So the old times could play really defensively and make sure they're blocking out these big attacks. And then Icelander would kind of run out of fuel and old time would end the game at 20 something li- or still be at 20 something life. And at that point, it's probably too late to start establishing your frost hexes because you're just going to eat a bunch of damage while you're trying to set those up at that point. 
So instead, where I've kind of ended up is I'm playing these attacks pretty early. And if they are blocking the attacks with two or even three cards, sometimes they, they'll do that. Then I will try to find windows where I can play a Frost Hex or an Insidious Chill or other combo pieces and just leave them with a five card hand. Because a lot of the time, if you leave Old Hand with a five card hand, there's a reasonable chance he won't be able to use his hand efficiently and he'll just like waste a full card or waste two resources out of it or something. Okay. And that kind of, the odds of them being able to use a five card hand increases the more copies of Pummel they play, but yeah. also the more copies of Pummel they play, the worse they are at blocking. So you, if they aren't blocking, that's, if they are blocking a lot, they probably can't have that many Pummels because Pummel requires basically a four card hand or a three-card hand in the case of CNC pummel with a two-knit counter, but almost always it requires a four-card hand to really use, and it blocks for two. So if you have a lot of pummels in your deck as old time, you're kind of forced to block less. And when they're forced to block less, you don't have to combo them. You just have to combo them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. You, you only have to combo them if they're blocking out your reds pretty pretty well or pretty effectively. And uh, the CNC pummel is the whole reason why you're playing Crown of Providence in this matchup instead of Coronet Peak. Because in theory, Coronet Peak should be pretty good in this matchup. Oldheim needs a lot of resources, and they aren't always trying to like pitch cards on your turn to use Crown of Seeds or things like that as they would in other matchups. So Coronet Peak would normally be fairly impactful in the matchup, I would think, but given just the threat of those Command and Conquer pummels, you switched to Crown of Providence, right? Yeah, I actually don't love Coronet Peak in the matchup because a lot of the time, as Oldheim adds more cards to his hand, he gets less efficient. Whereas, like, if you compare it to the Aggradex, where, like, as they get more cards, every card gets more efficient. Oldheim, with one card, he can swing winners well for four at a Frostbite. With two cards, he can swing winners well in Arsenal, a card, I guess. Or he can play, like, a three for seven, but usually those don't have great on hits. And yeah, but it's kind of like what you were talking about before, where if they're not blocking, then they're probably keeping their whole hands and looking to actually try to play, you know, those pummels and like those rouse the ancients or zealous beltings and things like that. And I guess in those situations, I would expect Coronet Peak to be more impactful than I guess if they were trying to just like go for the fatigue route. So I guess it is contextual. Yeah. If, if the old times on a very aggressive version of the deck that then I could see Coronet Peaking being... But then if they're on the aggressive version, then they're CNC pummeling you. So it's like... Yeah, so Crown of Providence is really good. It lets you arsenal red cards sometimes because you have that out to CNC pummel. And even sometimes when you have a blue card in arsenal, you don't always really want to play it because maybe they're going to four card CNC pummel you. So they're going to have two resources floating. So like dealing extra damage to them with playing a blue from arsenal and waning mooning them is not really efficient when they have that. So you'd rather just... Uh, crown of providence it away okay and then is this the matchup where you're playing iron high gauntlet then i imagine you're not playing iron on this matchup though yeah so this is iron hide gauntlet tunic uh crown of providence and every matchup storm striders so i'm not gonna talk yeah. about that yeah you never not storm striders it's yeah. crazy oh i was gonna yeah. ask one more question have you thought of playing more defense reactions for this matchup like uh if if it really got to be a point that you'd they just got really aggressive with pummels and things like that. Like, could you see moving towards like unmovables or anything like that or no? Yeah, I think I would lean towards fate for scene before I went to unmovable because I think fate for scene is pretty good against Phi and it has other spots where it's nice, but yeah, I agree. 
the biggest reason <laughs> I started with, or I ended up on just a singles is when I was testing for nationals, some of the old times were on hard of ice and if you have multiple defense reactions and they hard of ice you, it feels, it's like really bad. Yeah, that's for sure. So <laughs> I think that it's definitely reasonable, especially since most old times aren't playing hard of ice or playing it in the in their deck or in this matchup. It's just not a card that most bring. Yeah, I would imagine Bolander's pretty happy to sit across from an old time who's presenting a hard of ice just because that's not really what the game's about. Yeah, and... Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> okay, we can move on now. Okay. So next would be the mirror, I guess. Or saving the room bleeds for last? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about the mirror. Yeah, I think I think these are the oh, I guess I'm talking about the decks in kind of the order that I expect. Maybe maybe wow. I should be higher. But I think Shots fired. I think the rune blades are in a rough spot <laughs> because of their in my opinion, they're a horrible matchup in Icelander. But anyway, <laughs> so, uh, so Icelander, the mirror, uh, sink below and scar for a scar are both quite bad in the matchup. Scar for a scar is bad for a couple of reasons. One, you aren't going to be lower than them nearly as often as you're lower than other heroes because they have the same stuff as you. They have the storm striders. They have the lower, the starting same line. lower starting line. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> Scarf, and even if you are, sometimes you play Scar for a Scar, and then they give you a Frostbite, and you look at your blue and your Wounded Bowl, or your blue and your final Fighting Spirit, and you can't play it because of the Frostbite. So, Scar for a Scar comes out. Sink Below is okay in some spots if they're on Bolander and not on traditional Icelander. And because of those reasons, it basically isn't worth how much it costs to include it in your deck as opposed to just like another three block. You can just put a blue three block in your deck and the blue is going to be better against arcane damage better anytime they don't attack you. Whereas, yeah, it's a card you definitely never want to arsenal, right? Uh, I don't think it's the end of the world if you arsenal it most of the time, but if your opponent knows about it, <laughs> then it's 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 rough. <laughs> I could believe that one. So, and then after you cut the scars and the sinks, you just cut five blues. I think... Yellow Aether Icemane isn't great in the matchup, but you just need to have ways to trigger your Insidious Chills and your Amulet of Ice. Red Aether Icemane is a lot more than one point better because if you have one Insidious Chill, then it takes seven resources to cover up the Red Icemane plus the Insidious Chill trigger, whereas Yellow just takes six, so it's clean off two cards. So Red Insidious Chill is reasonably better than... Or Red, Red Aether Ice Veins is reasonably better than yellow, but I think it's still good enough that you keep the yellow. And then for the blues, the worst blues blizzard, it doesn't block. It is ice, which is nice, but it doesn't block and it doesn't turn on Winning Moon. And you can't really get it out of your deck because unless you're just like casting it on something that doesn't have go again anyway. So I cut the three blizzards. And then I think the last cut is kind of between hypothermia and brain freeze. And it's basically whether you'd rather have the ice card or the three block. I think currently I'm leaning towards the three block, but I would agree. Yeah. So I, I could see cutting if, if you think that having another ice card matters more, I think it's fine to cut the brain freeze instead of the hypothermia. Yeah. I think blocking is obviously going to be important in the matchup, given that you really don't want to be presenting arcane damage. If you can at all help it most of the time, because you're both going to be playing Alluvian Gunstellus. So anytime that you're giving them the charges on Alluvian, it's 
not getting the full value off of it because it's almost not only preventing that one damage when they pitch to prevent it, but it's almost like dealing one back to you then at that point. So it's just not the best thing to be doing, obviously, all the time in the matchup. And that's why in Nationals in particular, when the Icelanders weren't on Bullander, you just had a field day with them because you just had a substantial advantage of ways to deal damage of them that didn't require you to charge their Alluvian Constellus, but they didn't. Yeah, for sure. And I think that in one way, like this is a matchup that you usually want to frost tax them in because a lot of the time you just like can't get enough damage through without frost taxing because they have so many blues to pay for arcane damage and so many three blocks to just stop the physical attacks. But sometimes if you get an early frost tax out, it can be really weird to find spots to cycle your arsenal because you'll give them that one frostbite if you play like a cold snap or a polar blast or something from arsenal. And that one frostbite represents one arcane damage that they can block with a an extra card yeah. and charge their alluvian. So in general, I'm very I'm I'm definitely looking to set up my frost hexes and my insidious chills pretty early in this matchup and often and not pitch them too often. But there are some there is some tension there with frost with the first frost hex. Yeah. And then let's talk about channel like Frigid in this matchup because in my opinion, I think it's the most important card for when it's played, um, especially at the end of the game. If you can either get it to be an endgame pitch stack or it's at the end of your first cycle, just lucky enough. And what it does is it basically gives you a security blanket from them just trying to kill you out of nowhere because it's a lot harder for them to try to pop Storm Striders use their Alluvian Constellus, use their Waning Moon, play these cards either from hand or arsenal through a channel like Frigid. And that's why I think it's just like matters so much in the end game. Yeah. If you can set it up where you have your channel like Frigid pretty close to the, or pretty early in the second, second cycle or the end of the first cycle, it's really powerful. Not only does it make it like really hard to kill you since Storm Striders cost an extra resource there, whatever they're trying to play off Storm Striders cost an extra resource. It also means that anytime they want to pop an amulet device or an energy potion, it costs a resource and activating a Luvian also costs a resource. So it just gets really hard for them to kill you, I guess, when you have a channel in play. And then even the cards that aren't trying to kill you, costing one extra resource is really annoying. So playing your Frost Hex, playing your Insidious Chill all cost four resources instead of three, like we were talking about earlier with uh, just how Icelander is vulnerable to a frostbite. She's also very vulnerable to Channel Lake Frigid and doesn't want to see it in play. It can be kind of difficult to find a good window to play it out because a lot of the time, if you arsenal it and you play it, then they're just going to do whatever they were going to do in response. Like if they play a non-attack action, you play your channel, they're just going to winning win you then. If they wanted to winning win you, and if not, then they don't care. But it is very valuable to get it down later in the game. Yeah, and one of the critical cards you mentioned in that evaluation is what I think is the second most impactful card in the matchup, which is weird because it's marginal to garbage most of the other time, but it's Energy Potion. And Energy Potion just being that enabler for the endgame combo, obviously, first and foremost, that's why it's there, is to help you charge up and make your Insidious Shields bigger than they would be not otherwise. Ice Eternals. But, Ice Eternals, sorry. Uh, Ice Eternals bigger than they would be otherwise. But... I guess I was thinking about it because it allows you to pay for insidious chills or these amulet devices, less so amulet device, because let's say your opponent fuses an ice card and they have an insidious chill and an amulet device out. 
and you go to crack an energy pot in order to pay for the insidious gem, they can in response activate their amulet of ice as an instant. So their amulet of ice will resolve before your energy from the energy potion has resolved. So it's just a really important timing uh, thing to keep my mind in the matchup. But overall, it's just really impactful for just giving you flexibility in spots where you wouldn't have it otherwise. Yeah. And one last thing to add about the energy potion is that situation I was talking about where you sometimes don't want to play your arsenal because they have a fro- you have given them a frost X already. Energy potion doesn't give them a frost bite, so you don't have to worry about it charging the their alluvian. Yeah. Um, last the Northern Hood's basically only for this matchup. You also played against Kano, but there's not very much Kano that exists. And I think if you don't expect very much Icelander, it's reasonable to cut. I don't think you're at a huge disadvantage in the mirror if you don't have it. It's definitely better than the two blocking hats in the mirror, but if you don't expect very much Icelander at all, it's fine to cut the Norrin Hood. Yeah, it's really only matters against ready at the Ice Veins, right? Yeah, basically. Okay. And then I guess this is the first matchup we're playing Metacarpus Node, though. So why don't you talk about Metacarpus Node? Yeah, so Metacarpus Node, it's mostly there for the extra arcane barrier. Uh, and the other gloves kind of suck. Iron Rod and Iron Hide are not very good gloves in general. Metacarpus Nodes is much more powerful. You just like need an excuse to play it, like the Arcane Barrier being relevant. Mm-hmm. And basically, the turn that you're killing, a lot of the time you play it, you can play a damage card from Arsenal, plus Storm Sword is a damage card from your hand, and you can pitch two extra resources into Metacarpus Nodes to basically increase your damage by two. It also matters with Ice Eternal, where you play Ice Eternal, you have zero resources floating, you fuse a card, then you can put the Metacarpus node trigger on the stack and pitch the blue that you fuse the Ice Eternal with to pump the damage of Ice Eternal by one with Metacarpus node and then use your last two to Winning Moon. So those are the two spots that you really activate it with either two mm-hmm. damage spells or with Ice Eternal. But you can find other windows, I'm, I guess, but it's more straightforward. Yeah, pitching a spots. blue with Ember to Scalding to clean that up to five damage at instant speed is pretty nice. Yeah. And you should basically not never be popping Metacarpus nodes unless you're killing them or killing them maybe the turn after. But. Yeah, same with Storm Striders though, right? I guess we haven't talked about that where you really, it's it's almost always a losing play to pop Storm Striders before you're actually killing your opponent just because you'll get into those end game states where your opponent will be within like those otherwise lethal ranges and... You just can't play your cards at instant speed. You just don't have that threat anymore. So once you get to those lower life totals, you're just actually at the same like disadvantage state than any other hero would be at the end of the game then at that point, which is not where Icelander wants to be. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are exceptions, but like there aren't very many. If your opponent Phi goes Art of War Spreading Flames, maybe you can Storm Striders them there. Maybe not even not even 100%, but or your opponent on Briar has a channel mount heroic and you basically know they have several go again attacks somehow, then you could pop it to strip their hand. But a lot of the time their, their average damage output is not going to be high enough to warrant using storm shredders. Even if you have like a ready through ice vein that you want to fire off to disrupt their turn. Yeah. The handful of times that I was in situations that I thought it would be worth it, I wound up losing those games anyways down the line because, like I said, we just got to those endgame states where we both had low life totals, and I just didn't have the reach that is what makes Icelander so potent in those endgame states, and I just kind of died because 
I just couldn't present the damage that obviously I would be otherwise had I been able to play my cards at instant speed. So yeah, it's just it's, kind of awkward about them. Yeah. So I think in general, if you're unsure, just don't use Storm Striders. Between Nationals and Worlds, I think I popped my Storm Striders on turns that were not the last turn of the game zero times. So it's... I would believe it. There are times where it is correct, but there are not very many of them. Okay. Now is it Runeblade time? Is it Runeblade yeah. o'clock? Yeah, Runeblade o'clock. Okay. Um, Do you want to talk about the more joke of the two Runeblades first? That's right. <laughs> Yeah. And I say so, a joke because I always said it was a buy. And then in the last pro quest, I think we played at, or it's a battle hardened, I lost to Viscerai and like my last round of the battle hardened. And I was just like shocked. Shout out to Kevin Breyer. He's a very good player. But yeah, I, I could not believe that I lost to a Viscerai. Like I just, I've always considered it to be a buy for Icelander up until that point. Yeah. So Viscerai is the only non wizard matchup that you get to play Alluvian Constellus against because he threatens arcane damage almost every turn because of his rune chance. Even if he's not attacking with Rosetta Thorn, it's really hard for him to avoid attacking with rune chance or popping rune chance. Mm -hmm. So because of that, Alluvian Constellus just gets so much value over the course of the game. And it also means you can be less selective about what kind of blues you arsenal because like a lot of the time, I don't want to arsenal my Frostings because if I play Frosting and winning with them, it's only spending two resources. I don't want to arsenal my ice bolts because if I play ice bolt and winning with them, it costs four resources and I can't really use the other two. Against Viscerai, a lot of that is... None of that matters. Yeah, none of that matters. You can arsenal <laughs> whatever you want, whatever, however the hands line up to arsenal cards, you can just dump your extra resources into using Olivia on a chance and it's great. The other thing is you're also very good at blocking because Brother in Arms can also very easily help you reach those blocking breakpoints break for mobs, guys, and stuff. And both, this is kind of a Viscerite and a Briar problem where you can leave your card in Arsenal and wait to see if the Frostbite will stop them from swinging with Rosetta Thorn. It's kind of face up if it will or won't most of the time because they have to play their non-attack and their attack with go again. And then they're going to ha either have no resources floating or one resource floating or more than one resource floating. And when they have one resource floating, <laughs> give them a Frostbite. <laughs> Makes sense. So the Viscerite... Oh, go ahead. So, <laughs> this very matchup, pretty tough for Viscerai. I am not honestly sure how I want to sideboard in the matchup. Most of your cards are pretty good, and the blues are all pretty good at blocking. So, I don't Energy exactly Potion's the big one. Easy cut, doesn't block. It's not really what the matchup's about. You don't need the extra energy because Waiting Moon's free the whole match. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I could also see cutting. Um, some of the attacks, whether it could be Wounded Bull, because you are often ahead in the matchup pretty frequently, just because they're just taking three damage from Waning Moon every turn, it feels like. Or I guess every other turn, given the nature of Viscerai. You just don't, you're just so efficient at presenting damage through other means that you just don't need Wounded Bull as much. And maybe some of like the cards that I guess don't really impact them super much, like. If you wanted to brain freeze, it, they, they kind of are playing a lot of big bulkier attacks. There's not a lot of zeros you can take from them. The zeros you can take are impactful, definitely, but it's not going to come up all the time. And that kind of puts brain freeze in an awkward spot. But I would say like 
the all-star of the match though is, is hypothermia just because like every turn they obviously want to be playing Mavrin skies into their attack and when you just play hypothermia and they're like oh my attack doesn't have go again anymore or you play a hypothermia when they are confidently attacking you with like a swarming loom veil or something like that and it's just like oh well i guess i just attacked you for four this turn <laughs> your turn yeah and it's like thanks appreciate it mm-hmm. i agree with those i could also see a world where you cut sink below i'm not sure what a viscerite plan that consistently beats ice center looks like but it wouldn't surprise me if the way that Viscerai does end up beating Isolator involves not attacking on a reasonable amount of turns. And in that case, if the Viscerais aren't attacking every turn, then Sig Blow starts looking a lot worse. Yeah, do you want to talk about the Discord chat that we that was popping up over the past week? Shout out to the Patreon, uh, or I guess it's not even Patreon, but just the Manor Discord chat where people were asking if Fatigue Viscerai is possible now because of the new card. It's like Diabolic Edict or something like that, where it forces each player to sacrifice an enchantment and since frost hex is an enchantment that viscerai controls he can choose to sacrifice his own frost axes so it takes away your ability to end game combo him and then you're just supposed to block and ab a whole bunch for the rest of the game i guess but do you think that's viable no idea it in theory makes sense if viscerai can basically change his deck enough that he has two or three of these and enough three blocks and ways to not die in the meantime high high blue count high three block count and two or three of these to kill frost hexes i could see that potentially being a recipe that beats icelander yeah i guess i would just would think that you would need ab5 at that point and it's pretty hard to get to that point so i don't know even with ab3 if you're leaking two extra damage from or one damage from each of the yellow ice veins one damage from each scolding and two extra damage from the Red ice veins. That's still only leaking eleven damage. If you're so, if you're able to block out most of the other stuff, then you should be okay. Fair enough. Okay, and now what about Briar? So, what does Briar do a little bit more competently than uh, Viscera here in this matchup? So Briar can present more threatening turns on the turns that you don't disrupt her. Like Channel Mount Heroic is a very scary card. And then Briar is also much better at blocking out your attacks because a lot of the time if she leaks one or two damage, that embodiment, the averse she gets, means her non-attacks block for one extra, which just lets her more efficiently block out your attacks. Yeah, so, it's a double-edged sword though, but yeah, we'll get to that. So the other thing that Briar does better is she doesn't present arcane damage every turn she attacks, only if she attacks with Rosetta Thorn. So... Against Briar, I am still playing Final Spring Tunic instead of Alluvian Cancellus because she doesn't present arcane damage frequently enough to make Alluvian worthwhile over Tunic, basically. Yeah, I would agree. Then, sideboarding against Briar, I'm cutting... I'm cutting Frost Texas and Ice Eternals again because you don't really need to combo Briar. She can't really block you out that well. And then I'm also cutting, this is, this feels bad to say, but I'm cutting the wounded bulls in this matchup because so against Briar, a lot of the time, if you have Aether Ice Vein versus wounded bull in your hand, if you have both cards, you'd want to play the Ice Vein over wounded bull because you really want to strip Briar from playing those four or five card hands when you can. And 
she also has the embodiments to effectively block out Wounded Bull. If you play Wounded Bull and she blocks it with a four and a, a four block and a three block, which is a three block and a two block, they get plus one each from the embodiment. Then that's not a great exchange for you. Suddenly you traded your action point and two cards for two cards and one life, which is fine, but it's not it's not really above rate, right? If they block with two cards and you play two cards mm-hmm. and you get one damage and you spend your action point. So Wounded Bull just doesn't look as good into Briar as it does against a lot of other decks. So I'm and then Ice Vein is also very good against Briar, whereas other decks is just like fine a lot of the time. So you'd rather have Ice Veins than Wounded Bulls. So in a lot of other spots, you can just block with an Ice Vein and attack with a Wounded Bull if you'd rather, if you get both. But against Briar, you would almost always choose to block with a Wounded Bull and keep the Ice Vein, which means you should just cut the red two blocks. Scar for Scar is still very good though, because if you have Scar and Ice Vein, you can just play the Scar and then play the Ice Vein. So Scar stay in. Yeah. And then I guess this is also probably another matchup though, where like Sink Below and Brother in Arms shines just because of how many just natural fours the deck presents. Yeah. Most of the deck or a lot of the attacks in the deck just have four power. So you're pretty happy to have both Brother in Arms and Sink Below. Briar plays Snatch and her snatches a lot of the time are not as hidden the same way Fias are. So you, because because she has so many ways to give her stuff going in between Embodiment of Lightning, a lot of times she'll play Snatch before the end of her turn, and then you can just play your Sink or your Brother in Arms. One awkward thing that can happen with Sink Below is a lot of Briars aren't Exude Confidence, though, and that can make Sink Below pretty awkward. But I don't think the risk of getting Exuded is enough to cut your Sink Belows. Okay. And then did you talk about what arms you're playing in this matchup? Yeah, so I do, although Briar doesn't present arcane damage as much as Viscera, you still do want an AB, a source of AB1. Your Storm Traders give you AB2 for Rosetta Thorn, but... That's just, awkward against, like, if they make Rune Chance and stuff, though. Yeah, if they make Rune Chance, or even Bramble Spark is a card that I think almost all Briar decks are playing, and sometimes you just want to be able to put one resource into blocking the arcane there. So we play Carpus Nodes here, and... It also gives you some extra reach at the end of the game, which is nice. You're just like, like I said earlier, you're basically looking for any excuse to play Metacarpus nodes over the gauntlets <laughs> and Bramble Spark and sometimes wanting to block one arcane damage on Rosetta Thorn instead of two or want to block rune chances enough to warrant the switch here. Okay. And then did you want to talk about the timing interaction of those uh, embodiments of earth that when they go away, I mean, it's a pretty, I, I, I think it's fairly known at this point, but it's just another dynamic of the matchup that I think really gives Icelander an edge just because normally most decks get that priority at the beginning of the turn. But yeah. So at the start of Briar's turn, once she enters her action phase, if she has an embodiment of earth in play, it's going to put a trigger on the stack to sacrifice it. And you can respond to that trigger by playing a card from your arsenal. And I wouldn't recommend playing just every card from your arsenal at that point, but the main two that I really look to play in this window are Cold Snap because they won't get a chance to play their arsenal before you Cold Snap them. So you'll get kind of two resources or you freeze their arsenal. So that's like plus one value, kind of, sort of, if they want to play their arsenal, it's plus one value. And then the other card is Channel Lake Frigid because normally when you play Channel Lake Frigid, you have to wait for them to do something first and then you Channel Lake Frigid them. But against Briar, you can just run out the Channel Lake Frigid at that point. Okay. The, other timing that I play my ice cards from Arsenal a lot is the same timing as against Viscerai, where you're looking for them to have one resource floating and an action point, and they want to swing the Rosetta Thorn, and you're like, nope, here's a Frostbite. 
<laughs> nice try, buddy. Okay. Yeah, but I think as we saw in your world's top eight run, it's definitely a favorable matchup for Icelanders. So. Yeah, I think of the good decks, I guess I would call them, I think Friar is probably the one that you're most happy to play against. That makes sense. Okay, moving on. I think the last two decks we're going to cover are Dromai and Dash. Yeah. They're probably the last two meta decks, right? Melevia. <laughs> no, yeah. we'll cover the. We'll, we'll do a second deck tech for all the other amazing heroes in the game, like Bravo, Levia, Azalea. Like people need to know those, but we'll, we'll save that for the second part. I, I'm sure that's going to happen. I'm. I, I really <laughs> believe that that'll happen. So let's talk about Dash. Dash has gotten a lot of new toys, and she is very good now Looking and very threatening. Shake up the meta in a big way, that's for sure. Yeah. So I think the Dash matchup is a matchup that before. I played it. I'm like, this matchup can't be that bad. What does Dash do that these other decks don't? Well, Dash is very good at using however many resources you give her. So if you strip her of a resource because you give her a Frostbite, she doesn't care. She's just going to load one last item at the end of her turn. <laughs> if you if you don't disrupt her, she, like, she can use her extra resources. So the Dash matchup actually is pretty hard. And you're also not that great at fatiguing. You have a lot of cards that don't block that well. And you have 36 life and you don't have very good blocking equipment. So... And she can also do the pistol plus induction chamber to really beat your fatigue plan because you don't have any recurring ways to deal damage. And your weapon, again, doesn't help you fatigue because it does arcane damage, so she can just pitch it to arcane barrier. Yeah, and cards like Blizzard and Hypothermia don't matter as much because she has other additional ways of generating action points. So those cards aren't as disruptive as they would be in other circumstances. Yeah, I actually think Hypothermia is extremely good against Dash. Because basically, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not as good as it might otherwise be. I guess. Yeah, I, I think this is the matchup where it's at its best. But <laughs> wow, sometimes she plays high octane, and you look at your hypothermia and arsenal, and you're like, oh no. And what about Achilles Accelerator though? Doesn't that well, let them just get them an action point though at instant speed? Yeah. So Achilles Accelerator, if they sacrifice it, they're giving up one arcane barrier, which is pretty good. Or like, it's you're pretty happy if that happens early in the game. And then it just lets them do one more thing, basically, because their next thing still won't be able to gain go again because of the hypothermia. So the way I'm looking to use my hypothermias in this matchup is I'm looking for my opponent to have an arsenal. And then on my turn, I want to basically play like a Frost Hex or Insidious Chill and just leave them with a five-card hand and then arsenal the hypothermia. And then they have a five-card hand and I'm going to play the hypothermia when they do their first thing. And then they're just like waste two or three cards is kind of the goal. Okay. What happens if your opponent knows you have a hypothermia in Arsenal? How would you play that spot? I Similarly, I would look to just like block with a couple cards and then spend my turn setting up a Frost X or an Insidious Chill. And then they're going to have the five card hand at some point or a four card hand even. And it's fine to just hypothermia that. You just like really okay. want to make sure you're getting like you're burning a card or two if you can. And then if they aren't ever keeping those big hands, eventually you could just play a permanent and force them to basically. Okay, good to know. For next time it comes up, you know? Yeah, in case that ever <laughs> pops up for anybody else's games, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So cards I'm looking to cut here. Uh, I don't like Sync Below because it's a lot of the time they're just spending their turn attacking with Pistol or doing random stuff, and you're not guaranteed to line up a 0 for 4 with it, basically. And 
the turns where you like strip their hand and draw sink below is pretty game losing. And Dash also does not have very many on hits. She has like combustible courier, I think, is the only one that actually matters where it gives your next thing plus three. Yeah, and then there's the one that gives dominate, but yeah. Yeah, the one that gives dominate doesn't really matter because she, what's she going to dominate? A five power boost attack throttle? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so the one, that, the one that gives dominate doesn't really matter. Um, okay. So I'm cutting my sink blows. I'm also cutting brain freeze. There just aren't that many targets in her deck that you want to strip with brain freeze. She does have a non-zero number of hits, but sometimes you'll play it and it'll miss. And again, your blocking is not that important in the matchup, I guess. I am still keeping the brother in arms because of combustible courier and needing to use my tunic counters in ways, but. And it's a, one of the few matchups where like it can also just block for two and it's fine against pistol and stuff. Yeah, though you're never really happy to block pistol for two. It comes up sometimes. But sometimes you got to block pistol. Yeah. For the last cut, I think... What am I cutting as the last cut against Dash? It might just be like frosting or something. No, we're cutting energy, energy potions. potions yeah. I didn't say energy Yeah, I was about potions. to say. Yeah. But that's that, not... That, that that's card not does not seem cards. great. Any of the reds you're cutting outside from sink below? No. Everything else in? I think all the attacks are good enough because like, well, all of our cards do block for three. You're still getting like plus one in the card most of the time when you play like a scar for a scar or if you play like a final fighting sword or wounded boy, you're going plus two off okay. your two cards for two cards. And you really need ways to spend your action points. Otherwise, you're just like kind of spewing value if you're not using your action points. Yeah. I, I think it's just frosting as the last cut, but I'm not positive. <laughs> Yeah, frosting sucks. Get it out of here. Uh, so, what headpiece are you playing in this matchup then? Because you kept saying, well, your Dash is just good at playing however many cards or resources you give her. So, that would probably lead me to believe that Coronet Peak is just not impactful at all in this match. So, this kind of diff- is different from other matches where I do still really like Coronet Peak against Dash. And there's a couple of reasons. First is, like I said earlier, she doesn't really have very many on hits. So, Crown of Providence, that two block breakpoint. Well, I guess you can also block two with coronet peak, but you don't really want to throw away your coronet peak usually too early. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But she doesn't really have breakpoints, so you don't care that much about getting stuck with cards and needing to block with crowd of providence. So yeah, so I, I don't really value it that highly. And then the other difference is Channel Light Frigid is super good in this matchup because when she wants to attack with her gun, she has to pay an extra to load things, pay an extra to give it go again with the ejection chamber, and then pay an extra to actually attack with it. So everything just gets taxed because of Channel Light Frigid. And because of that, a lot of the time you want Coronet Peak so that you can just pitch an ice card to Coronet Peak the turn after you play Channel. So you can keep the channel around without needing to have like something to do with your resources. So because of that, I think Coronet Peak is quite good. Though I'm not really looking to activate it on random turns. It's just mostly the to keep channel like frigid around okay I, that makes a lot of sense now that you talk about it like that and then i imagine this is an iron hide gauntlet matchup though yeah i think iron hide gauntlet is just again you need a ways to use your extra resources sometimes so it's nice to have it it's not great i think it's slightly better than iron raw gauntlet but again i think yeah this is a spot where like if you didn't have iron hide gauntlet and you just brought iron raw gauntlet i don't think you'd be too unhappy that's fair and then so like let's talk about some of these new toys that Dash got that could really change the impact of this matchup. And first and foremost, so how do you think we're going to beat the Gundam, the Nitroid Mechanoid? Um, 
this just seems like it's going to be a nightmare for Icelander to deal with, right? Just like this insane value of this giant robot. Icelander's ice isn't very good against robots, right? <laughs> so if Dash does make the mechanoid, then that means she does not have arcane barrier because oh. all, the, all the arcane barrier goes into the Gundam. Robots can't deal with magic. I forgot about that. It's my bad. So I I have not played against the mechanoid yet. And she does start with Arcane Barrier 3 because the hat and the boots both have AB and the hat has AB too. But if she builds the mechanoid, then she has no Arcane Barrier. So she has to kill you pretty quickly from that point. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. We'll talk about the real one. How about Pulse Wave Harpoon? How much, how, how impactful do you think this card is going to be? So Pulse Wave Harpoon is... Very a very good card. It's one of the probably strongest cards in the set, in my opinion, because like just being able to strip specific cards from your opponent is very valuable. I think it can be pretty hard for Dash to boost three times against Icelander, and if she boosts two times, then a lot of the time your hand's going to be two blues and a wounded bull, and she boosts two times with that, and she doesn't get to see all three of your cards. She just gets to see two, so you can hide the wounded bull and make sure it's safe, or the finals fighting spirit or whatever you were wanting to play that turn. Okay. But if she boosts three times and plays it and forces your wounded bolt to block, I don't know if there's a lot we can do to play around that. And it kind of sucks when it happens, but I don't think it'll come up that often. Yeah. Boosting four times is a lot to be asked, ask for in a turn most of the time. And it's especially hard to do through like frostbites or channel like fridges and our coronet peaks and things like that. So I don't know just how super impactful the card will be but i guess time will tell mm-hmm. yeah i think it really i think that card is very good but i think it shines mostly against like the aggressive decks that are looking to keep very specific four card hands or just yeah keep I, I four card hands in general okay any any final thoughts about dash uh the last thing i've kind of talked about this how dash can use however many resources you give her pretty efficiently so a lot of the time you'll want to just save your ice card in arsenal and wait to see what she does and if she has she loads her gun and goes to zero resources loading that's when you want to give her a frostbite so she can't use her action point to shoot again. yeah the the more i think about it though the way michael hamilton looks at it is the ice cards aren't just ice cards in the arsenal they're trap cards you can't just be throwing out your trap cards willy-nilly you got to wait for them to be activated and then you have to flip them over and you say you've activated my ice trap card right <laughs> and then you give him a frostbite and then that frostbite and then you banish him to the saddle realm <laughs> yeah is that yeah. what you do no but that is how i time them <laughs> you, you only want to give them a frostbite when the frostbite matters because outside of polar blast and cold snap your cards into winning moon are pretty inefficient from arsenal so you don't want to just be like flipping them up all willy-nilly and not getting value out of the frostbite and even with cold snap and polar blast you still want to maximize the value you're getting out of the frostbite just because they're efficient anyway doesn't mean you want to just like waste them okay i believe it all right and last is dromai is that right yeah but we already covered this right because we just covered it on the last episode of manor university of dromai versus icelander so it was a really good insightful discussion a lot of good gameplay we really broke it down and talked about the do's and don'ts in the matchup so do you think we really need to cover this well, that's not available to the general public, right? Oh, that's right. That's right. Sorry, I forgot about that. So uh, I guess they just have to go to www.patreon.com slash podcast in order to see that content. But we'll, uh, we'll talk about it here too. So real quick against Dromai, this 
matchup you play storm striders metacarpus node tunic and then the hats between crown Providence and coronet peak i think it's very close coronet peak has the same interaction against dash where you can keep channel lake around with it which matters less against dromai but crown of Providence also isn't that great i'm could be convinced on either hat i've been running crown of Providence recently but i think there are arguments for coronet peak this matchup though it kind of goes against everything i said about saving storm striders and saving metacarpus nodes till you're killing them because I guess I should talk about kind of the dynamic of the matchup where Dromai like plays the, the, her, there's dragons plays her dragons and when Dromai declares them as an attacker, you can kill the dragon basically before the effect the on or the on attack trigger goes on the stack. So she's gonna play. Yeah, you stop their attacking attack from attacking before the attacking attack is an attack. Yeah, and I talked about this on an episode not that long ago, the world's recap episode, but basically. That's kind of how you want to do it. They're going to lose their action point, and then you're good. They don't have an action point anymore. So you want to basically line up your stuff to disrupt all the dragons. And early game, you're just trying to push as much damage as you can before she gets a big amount of dragons. Then late game, you're kind of pivoting to stopping her from killing you and also trying to find a way to kill her, which sometimes is frost X combo. Sometimes it's just pushing damage through efficient attacks and waning moon. But yeah, that's kind of how the matchup plays i guess for sideboarding i cut sync below it's pretty bad because yeah the there's time... not a lot of good spots for sync below i guess dust up is like the big thing but like that's pretty niche yeah but you were saying so, i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off you're okay so sync, sync below comes out energy potion comes out this is the one matchup that i'm considering cutting amulet device because specifically because it can be really awkward into kyloria and a lot of the time oh, they can steal your items huh yeah they steal your amulet device which a lot of the time them taking your amulet device hurts more than them just drawing a card because maybe they couldn't use the card very effectively or they're under a channel like frigid or something like that or they're hypothermiaed so their dragon doesn't actually have go again so it could be really rough to have to block the kyloria to protect your amulet device in spots that you wouldn't normally want to and then almost all of your cards are pretty good in this matchup because all your reds are poppers or enlightened strike or scar for scar, which are scar for scar is great for killing a dragon and having go again. And enlightened strike, you can also choose to go again mode, which is good. And also just attacking Dromai, it can put her in spots that make it hard for her to keep a hand that does something and also block out your attack. So like attacking Dromai is quite good. I am cutting hard to find all in this matchup because a lot of the time the one life doesn't matter i want to say because the games you're losing are frequently because she has a board that got out of control and you weren't able to stop it for that turn yeah i could especially see that being the case because these matches aren't going super long right like you're not going very deep at the second cycle right yeah usually i think you usually will get to the start of second cycle but the game usually ends pretty quickly after that because you have a lot less disruption for her dragons you're through all your poppers you either need to be killing her pretty early in second cycle or you're gonna have trouble stopping the dragon onslaught yeah. What would you say is the most impactful dragon in the matchup? So there's Which dragon are you most unhappy to see? There's two dragons. I think both Demai and Chromai are very important. Chromai, if they attack, if they start their turn by attacking with Chromai, even if you kill it, they'll still get an action point because they'll either get an extra action point for attacking with it or they'll get an extra action point when it leaves the battlefield. And that extra action point can allow them to do pretty strong things. Like they can play around hypothermia with it and it's also just means if you 
try to strip their action point by killing a dragon at any point, they'll still have one left over. So right. Chromite is very good and very annoying. And the fact that it costs zero comes up a lot because they can just leave their turn with Chromite and they have six dragons in play and you're like, oh no, I'm going to take so much damage this turn. <laughs> and then the other annoying one is Thamai. Thamai costs two resources, so it can be a lot more awkward for them to play, especially if you're attacking them the turn before they have it. But the Mai is just text of you can't play cards on their turn. It's very good against everything you're trying to do. You are trying to play a card to stop them from attacking you with all their dragons. And because of that, the Mai is very good against you. And you're, they're still vulnerable to poppers. So if they play the Mai and then they attack with any dragon, you can still pop it. But it's still that's, that very shouldn't good. happen very often. Like good draw my players, I guess just well, being a little blunt shouldn't shouldn't really be attacking with the th- Thamai's very much in the yeah, matchup. But if they play a Thamai and attack with an Ash an Ashwing, even if you can't play your ice card from Arsenal, you can still pop the Ashwing and they'll lose their action point. So then you don't have to worry about the rest of the turn. And then you can play your Scar for a Scar or E Strike or Blue Brother in Arms to kill the Thamai on your turn. Wait, what could you repeat that? So if you pop if you pop the Ashwing with your popper. Their turn's sure. going to end because they have no action point. And what, while there's a Thamai on the battlefield? Yeah. If you pop it with a popper, oh, they pop, lose their action okay. point. I, 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 I misunderstood. I thought you were saying like kill it with like a, like kill the Ashwing from like a, like an arsenal card. I was like, you can't do that though with Thamai. That's the whole point of the card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, pop, the poppers are still very good. And okay. so Chromai also can kind of be vulnerable to a popper where if you pop the Chromai, they'll have one action point and then you can play a blue from arsenal too kill the next attacking dragon but basically these two dragons are the most annoying and i will frequently when i'm playing the game i will be counting them and i will be paying a lot of attention to when they pitch one of these two dragons so i know i need to end the game before that gets back or if they have a board i'm in a lot of trouble yeah so earlier we talked about how single blue is not very impactful but why don't you talk to me about like the secret mode of why brother in arms is like really good in this matchup so yeah brother in arms the block for four doesn't matter that much. Occasionally, you can use Tunic and use it to block like a Kyloria or a Dust Up, but they don't have that many on hits and they don't have that many things that really attack for four. But mm. it kills the Mai, it kills Chromai. You need to kill those you two dragons. <laughs> yeah, you can attack a dragon. So it's good. Get them. It's, yeah. <laughs> you need Red Brother in arms now, too. Now it just does everything. It slices and dices. And, yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> But I, I guess I shouldn't give away your tech like that. I'm sorry. Uh, my bad. And then I uh, guess the last thing yeah. I want to say about the matchup is a lot of the time you'll end your opponent's turn because you kill their dragon, they attack with an Ashwing, you're frosting it. They're going to have one or two cards left over in hand a lot of the time. And if they have a card in hand in an arsenal or even two cards in hand in an arsenal, then don't win even them. Don't do it. You're, they're just going to pitch their card, arcane barrier, all your stuff, maybe even get, a, get an extra ash. And you're going to spend a whole extra card to waiting with them and deal one damage or zero damage or even sometimes even two damage and they'll get an ash out of the deal, which yeah feels good, but it feels okay. But like if you're spending a whole extra card to do it, it's not great. So just be very selective about when you actually waiting with them here. Okay. Did you talk about what gloves you're playing in this matchup? Yeah. So I think I did, but I play Metacarpus nodes here because they do have a little bit of arcane damage with Asvali and Sometimes they play burn them all. I think they should be siding out their burn them alls against you, but you'll see burn them all sometimes. And when you have metacarpus nodes against them, it also helps make it easier to reach breakpoints to kill specific dragons. Let's say they play a Kyloria and attack with it, and you have a blue frosting arsenal. 
you can use metacarpus nodes now to kill the kaloria with the frosting and basically shut down their turn and this is the one matchup where i think things change where before i said never use stormfighters never use nodes unless it's lethal against dromai i will use either of these cards to stop big turns and also stop the legendary dragons like uh Dominia and Tumultai. yeah 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 those cards are are nightmares that's for sure okay yeah but uh, you would definitely say dromai's icelander is like worse matchup like overall though in like meta decks right i think so i could see a reasonable argument for dash but i think dromai is harder especially like a dromai bot that has a lot of reps into the matchup and is very experienced and prepared and knows how to maximize like chromize and thumize against you it, it can be it's very challenging okay definitely makes a lot of sense uh, i really appreciate you talking and go, doing this deck tech about icelander i know you were hesitant to just kind of like put out like a sideboarding guide just because as we've now discussed for an hour and 20 minutes there's a lot of nuance to a lot of these decisions and uh, specific reasons that can change depending on how lists are adapting in this new meta that's coming up with dynasty coming out or just contextual based on like what's happening on specific builds of the deck as well so thank you very much for doing this and just sharing all of your wonderful icy insights with all of us yeah you're welcome it seems like it was asked for a lot and i kind of was very hesitant especially with like specific sideboard things because even even in this discussion, a lot of my sideboard things were like, I think you do this, but it could, you could do this instead. And a lot of that is going to change. And my opinions are going to change on some of those things over time. But that's how I currently think everything or what you should do now in all the spots. So that's fair. I mean, you're the world champion. So doesn't that mean all of your opinions are just objectively correct now? I thought that's that's how it works. Uh, I am human. No, oh, dang. Unlucky. Unlucky. What are you going to do? <laughs> Okay, any final thoughts to wrap things up, Michael? Uh, also, thank you for doing this and kind of pushing me to do this a little bit because I, I was definitely hesitant and the people wanted it, I think. So let yeah. us know in the comments if this is what you wanted. And I'm nothing but a man of the people, that's for sure, at the end of the day. So <laughs> once again, then, I also have to thank all the patrons. So patrons obviously really requested this. So thank you for everybody who's joined our community. The support continues to be amazing. Our community is growing, which seems just like more and more people every day. Discord's really blowing up. Lots of good conversations happening there. If you want to learn how to play Go, I just posted like a million <laughs> Go videos today. So we're growing the Go community as well at the same time here. And yeah, just awesome little community we're building here. How, huh, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not as hands-on as you are but i think i read everything that gets posted there there's a lot of interesting stuff but it all yeah, yeah. you have more important things to do you know you're just busy just polishing your, all your trophies and then you know just framing exactly where you want to put your giant checks in your house it, it's a lot to manage i know so i, I get it <laughs> all right <laughs> <laughs> well i guess on that note <laughs> thank you for watching everybody the next time you're playing flesh and blood always remember mind your manners Thanks for listening.